The reading this morning comes from Psalm 46 and can be found on page 559 on the Bibles in front of you. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The prevailing fears that um, really shouldn't even exist within us when we really know God and we know his grace. You know, I think of a story. A young boy, he was helping his mother um, in the kitchen. It was lightning outside. It was late at night, and he was really fearful, fearful of the, of the dark and fearful of the lightning. Well, his mom sent him into the, into the cellar to get a, a can of soup. It was scary for this young little boy, and so he said, Mom, I'm really scared. And she said, don't worry. Jesus will be in there right with you. He'll be, he'll be in that little space. So he opened the door, and it was dark in there, and he yelled at the top of his lungs, Hey, Jesus! Can you pass me the soup, please? <laughs> you know, that's what this psalm's about. It's about a God who is near to us. And you know, the most often repeated command in all the Bible, you know what it is? Fear not. Throughout the pages of Scripture, God is constantly telling his people to fear not. And actually, that's the central theme of the Bible, is that we're to fear God, in a sense, above anything else. When we say to fear God, we mean to hold him in such an awe and a reverence, to understand who he is in his holiness and his supremacy. And when we truly understand God, nothing in this world can capture our hearts in fear because we know this God to be superior and supreme over all things. And this is so important because as a pastor, I've spent countless hours listening to people who struggle with the biggest question of life, and that's this, why? Why do things happen? Why why does tragedy happen? Why are there hardships? Why are there injustices? Why is there turmoil? And this psalm speaks to this. I think of St. Augustine who had the great quote. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. So when we talk about fear, there's an important theme as a remedy for fear that we discover in this psalm. And what is it? Rest. If you notice throughout this psalm, the psalmist is constantly leading us to a place of rest. 
to pause and to remember who God is and to remember what God has done and to allow the reality of that to truly fill our hearts. So it was written by the, um, the director of music of the Sons of Korah, if you remember Korah. Korah was, uh, and his uh, descendants, they were in charge of administering the tabernacle back in Exodus. And they were the ones to service in the tabernacle. And so they rose up in a rebellion. It's, they're not really, they don't, don't go down as this great bunch in Scripture. And if you remember, the earth was swallowed up as punishment for their rebellion. And Korah and his descent, they all, the Korahites went into the earth. They were swallowed up in the earth. And so years and years go by, and they're not fulfilling this original ministry that was given to them. But now David has taken the throne, and he's, the, he's bringing revival. There's prosperity, economic prosperity in the nation. But he brings spiritual revival back to the nation of Israel. And in doing so, he reinstates the sons of Korah in their ministry in the temple to be those who, who administered the temple. And so, so much of this psalm has to do with uh, the, the picture of the tabernacle and the holy place and the holy of holies, which, a, which is a great story. Because here, these, these people were kind of on the outs, the sons of Korah. But David is that representation. He represents Christ to us in a sense that he reinstates them. And that's what it's all about. The message of the gospel is the message of grace. Basically, unmerited favor for the ill-deserving. And the sons of Korah represent the ill-deserving. But yet, now we see them as part of the worship community, writing songs, bringing psalms to us, and inspiring the people of God in worship. And so we come to this Psalm 46. We see two important aspects of this this morning as I unpack it. We see the exegetical aspect. We're going to unpack this, but then also the application for us this morning as we approach 2015 and we can approach it without fear. We can have a fearlessness and a courage that comes through the good news of the gospel. Okay, first of all, the exegetical aspect. This psalm, the basic theme we find in the very first verse, basically, the first two verses. And we read in verse one, God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Now, in the Bible, there's a lot of therefores, especially in the New Testament. And it's important, whenever there's a therefore, to find out what it's there for. So, this therefore is there for this reason. Because God is our refuge. And because he is our strength, and he's not just our refuge and strength and something that we have to seek out and find, but he's our refuge and strength, and he's an ever-present help in trouble, meaning speaking to the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere all the time. God is just as much in this room right now as he is on the Corso, down on Shelley Beach, in the city, in every restaurant. He is everywhere all the time. That brings us great encouragement because he's with us in church, but he's also with you in your car when you drive, and he's with you at work, and he's with you in the home. He's an ever-present help who's always there. And so the psalmist wants to remind us that if at any moment 
were to panic or fear or have a, face something very troubling, we don't have to run down to St. Matt's to find the Lord. We don't have to wait till Sunday morning to find a refuge and a strength. We can call out to God right then in any place, in any moment. You know, if you call out to God in your car, I encourage that you keep your eyes open. But you can call out to God. And he'll be right there with you. Isn't that a great comfort? So he's saying, because this is God, because he's our refuge and strength, and he's with us, he's omnipresent, he's there all the time, we don't have to fear. Now fear, biblically, speaks of faithlessness, really. Because, you know, it's interesting, in Revelation 21, there's a whole list of the characteristics of people who are cast into the lake of fire. We read of the unbelieving, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars. And it says their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. But there's another characteristic that's in that list, and it's interesting. The cowardly. And you're saying, wait a minute. Aren't there just people just in their makeup, in their personality? They're just sort of fearless. They go and they kite surf and they surf big waves, and they jump from airplanes. Well, that's not me. What do you mean the cowardly? See, and it's important to understand when we talk about fear, we're talking about a very specific fear. And it's a fear that cripples our lives. A fear that paralyzes us in, from moving forward, from, from moving on in life. And that's a real fear. There's all kinds of fears. If you were to Google Wikipedia and you get on there, there's a whole, there's dozens of fears listed. Some are, you know, hopefully you don't have these fears, but I, I look at them and go, wow, you know, there's real ones, arachophobia, which is the fear of heights. But I read in there, there's the fear of cats, right? Allurophobia. There's the fear of pain, algophobia. I like this one, kurophobia, which is the fear of clowns, which... It says, and they're not restricted to evil clowns. There's poopophobia, which is the fear of puppets. And there's ecclesiophobia, which is the fear of church. Obviously, you don't have that fear. Maybe you do. We'll pray for you. Nomophobia is the fear of being without a cell phone. Do you have that fear? So we look at these fears. All right. But there are some legitimate fears that people struggle with, that I struggle with. There's the fear of abandonment. Maybe someone you loved and was so important in your life left you. You were rejected by them, and you've worked through that and maybe still working that, through that through in your life. There's the fear of death. Very legitimate. But I think as we look at all the fears, behind every fear, I think, is the fear of failure. Deep down inside, it's the fear of failure. And that's where the enemy really gets us. That's where we really get stuck. You know, fear is part of the original lie. We understand even more the debilitating aspect of fear when we look at the very original lie when God created, had all creation, created man, created woman, and there they are in the garden. All is perfect and well, and God creates a tree, the tree of good and evil. And he said, you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of this tree. And what, this, what happens? Satan comes, and Satan says to Adam and Eve, did God really see? 
say eat, not even eat of this tree? Basically, the, the original lie, the original temptation was Satan saying, is God really good? He caused Eve to question, and Adam, to question the goodness of God. And that question that the enemy planted into the mind of Adam and Eve is what led to the, the first sin, the first rebellion against God. See, that's what fear is. See, this world we live in, the people we know, and even the devil himself will question, will cause us to question, to cause us to doubt the goodness of God. And this is the very root of fear. This is the foundation of where our fears come from. This is the fear that this psalm speaks to. This is the fear that the Bible is constantly trying to deliver us from. So then we read, so because he's our refuge and strength, therefore we shall not fear. And then verse 2, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. So he draws up this picture, the psalmist does, in a very poetic way. He paints a picture of chaos. And he's saying, basically, even though the earth were were to tumble, even though the earth were to blow up, even though that there is turmoil and chaos in the world, we shall not fear. And at the end of that, notice there, there's a Selah, if you're reading in in your Bible. You You might see that in the psalm, Selah. What does that mean, Selah? It simply means to rest. It's a pause. See, the psalmist, whenever there's a selah, it's a moment of silence, really. So the psalmist, there's a declaration made. Here's who God is. Here's what God has done. Here's the, the situation. Here's the reality. Now selah, where we're meant to pause and consider. To pause and reflect. To pause and rest. So we look at this psalm, and yes, it's a spiritual psalm, but in some ways it's a very intellectual psalm, meaning this psalm challenges our thinking. It challenges what we're thinking about. And the psalmist wants us to consider and then to rest, to consider and change our mind, if you will. And then we come to verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall, but he lifts his voice and the earth melts. Now he's speaking about the turmoil and the chaos of the seas, but now he's speaking about this river whose streams make glad the city of God. They're both bodies of water, but they're both very different. They're contrasting bodies of water. The sea is chaotic, where the river has a source. The river has a a source, and it has a direction. It has boundaries. It's going somewhere. It has a purpose, and that is to make glad the city of God. And the contrast is this, is that God's trustworthiness always remains, though the world is wavering, Though the world is in turmoil and there's hostility and things become unclear in this world. Basically, God is the God of heaven and earth. He's sovereign over all things, right? Now, think about this river. 
I think it has many different implications. It makes glad the city of God. Now, remember, the sons of Korah, they're the ones that ministered in the tabernacle. So they're speaking from the perspective of the, the tabernacle or the, the temple of God, the presence of God flowing from the temple, the place of worship. But throughout Scripture, the implications of this are, there's so many applications to it. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed the sins of humanity. And he paid the penalty for those sins, which is death. He did something that no one could ever do. And we read in the scriptures that when he died on the cross for us, that the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. That there was now no more need for the temple. Because now God is redeeming men and women, and he's forgiving them of all their sins, and now they will become the temple of God the very temple of the Holy Spirit. So when we think of the river of God, I think of it in an eschatological way, like in Revelations 22, when ultimately we'll be in the perfect presence of God in heaven. And it says in Revelation 22 that that river will flow from the throne of God. But there's also, it speaks of the church. The church is where God's presence is. The church is God's people to be a river a river flowing with his grace and his love and the message of the gospel and the message that Christ has won. It is finished, paid in full. The river could speak of even just you as a Christian who's been redeemed and now God, when you become his child, he puts his spirit within you and from your life comes a river. I think of John 7, when Jesus is being confronted whether he's the Christ, he stands up and with a loud voice, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Quoting Isaiah. See, Jesus is the river. Jesus was the river flowing from the temple. Jesus is the river flowing in heaven. And Jesus is the river flowing in the church. And Jesus is the river flowing in your life and through your life. And what is it about a river? A river flows because it's always flowing to the lowest point. That's what makes it a river. See, that's God's grace. That's God's glory. That's God's mercy. Is always flowing to the lowest point. Do you know how encouraging that is to me? In a world of chaos, in a world of inconsistencies, in a world of disappointments, and even the own inconsistencies of my life, the river is God's grace flowing to the lowest points in my heart. And if it wasn't low, it wouldn't need God's grace. But because I have low places in my heart, I need the grace of God. Grace is like a river flowing to me to the lowest points of my life and flowing to the lowest places of my relationships and flowing to the lowest places of my church and flowing to the lowest places of my community and my city and my nation and even to the ends of the earth. The river of God whose streams make glad the city of God. Grace is like a river. And when we know the grace of God, that's the key 
to dealing with fear in our life? How did you get saved? <laughs> how, how, or how were you saved? How, how did you become a Christian? You went to church, you did the right thing, you gave some money. See, it was up to you all along becoming a Christian, and you can basically you know, showcase the things that you have done in your works that makes you a Christian, therefore God must let you into heaven. Do you think of it like that? Do you think of your Christian faith as something that you participated in and therefore God owes you something? Or do you see your life and go, I was so far from God. It was a one in a billion chance. I was, doing, I was running from God. I was rebelling against God. And God, who's rich in his mercy, came and he rescued me with his son. When I was afar off, that's when Christ came. And in my rebellion, God gave everything just to have me and he rescued me. It's all his grace. I am saved by grace through faith. Not of myself, it's a gift of God. If that's how you see your Christian faith, that's how we deal with our fear. Because when we see life as mounting up our own personal resources to accomplish something, sooner or later our resources run out and we're fearful. Sooner or later our resources run out and we chicken out. <laughs> But when we realize that all that we have and all who we are is solely by the grace of God, that's what comforts us. Grace is like a river. God's city is the church. And we're ultimately going to be in God's city in its perfection. We are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of this city. In verse 7, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, that's very important because when, when God's referred to as the God of Jacob, I don't know if you know anything about Jacob. He was not the most righteous guy. <laughs> he was, he's an object of God's grace. And so when, when the God of Jacob is being invoked, it's speaking of this undeserving, covenantal love of God coming to us. It's a covenantal security that has been accomplished by a God who loves us, and he's the covenant-keeping God. And he's not only the covenant-keeping God, but he is a present help right here, right now, wherever you go. And then what do we see? Selah. You know what, Selah? It's just, ah, can you do that with me? Ah, that wasn't very good, Selah. It's a rest. You consider who God is. And in verse 8, come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. So the psalmist is saying, come, now, consider, and place God as the centerpiece in the midst of a chaotic world. Our world is filled with fear. There's so much going on. All the terrorist threats, the ISIS, economic calamity, personal trials. And if we look without, we will certainly be fearful. I like what Corey Dem Tenboom said. She said, you know, look within and deep be depressed. Look without and be distressed. Look at Jesus and be at rest. Our souls are rest restless until we find 
our hearts in Christ. See, verses 8 and 9 speak to this. We have a sovereign God. He's sovereign over all the affairs of the world. Nothing goes unnoticed. God has seen nations rise, and God has seen nations fall. God has seen places in times of war and in times of peace, and he's sovereign, and God has overseen and oversees the affairs of the entire world in all of human history, and he oversees the affairs of our lives. They're not random events. They are not outside of God's control. He he is in full control. And the Bible and all of its content is all about the grand narrative of God, the story of God on how God is redeeming. He's a redemptive God. Even in the midst of chaos, God ultimately breaks bows. God ultimately cuts spears. He's a sovereign God. And then we come to verse 10, and this is the... It's the exclamation point. The psalmist declares, so be still. That's the point. He says all these things, and so he says, quiet yourself. Be still. And it's, he's speaking from God in the first person, so it's got a prophetic nature to it in a sense where he says, be still, and this is God saying it to us, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. And that's the application. The psalmist wants us to stop and to think. And here's what God is saying. I am God. And I am with you. You know, we've been celebrating Christmas. And what's the, the great reference to God during Christmas time? Speaking of his incarnation. Emmanuel. Right? What does it mean? God with us. That's what this psalm is saying. God is with us, and he is the I am God. Notice that? Know that I am God. Throughout the Bible, God refers to himself as the I am. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they asked him, are you the Christ? He said, I am. He didn't say I am. He, he just said, I am. And the whole Roman army went down. Remember when Moses was afraid, he didn't, he's having this identity crisis, God called him, he didn't know how he was going to be God's messenger, he didn't know what he was going to do, and he came to God and he argued with God, I'm not the guy, I can't even speak, and what does God tell him to say? You tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. And that's what God would say to us today, this morning. As you take inventory of the things perhaps you see chaotic. As we look at the world events, as we see the world in turmoil, as you consider the things that you're afraid of, and you might have come this morning and you're saying, God, I need you. Something with your relationship, something with your job. You know what God is saying to you right now? I am. I am. God is saying, I am what you need. I am your peace. I am your provision. I am your refuge. I am your answer. I am your future. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. God is saying, I am to you. Whatever it is that you need this morning, he is the I am. 
And he wants us to take refuge in that and understand that and allow the truth of that so our, our fears can be dispelled. Notice that it's I am God, big G. He is the only God. Because everyone has a God, a little g. Uh, everyone worships something. Everyone has something that's central to their lives. It can be a person, it can be a career, it can be an it, it can be something. And whatever's central to our lives, it occupies our mind, it prioritizes our time, it, it, it requires and commands our resources, it, it, it defines us. And everyone has a God. But what the psalmist is saying is be still and know that he is God and he's the only God. You know, idolatry, it's interesting. It's not, when we read about idolatry in the scripture, it's not necessarily speaking about bad things. Even when there was the worship of Baal in the, in the Old Testament, they were basically worshiping the God of agriculture. Being an agrarian society, they wanted to have security that their crops would be successful and all this. And so they took something very good that was just providing for their family and they turned it into, some, they turned it into the ultimate. And that's what idolatry is. It's taking something good but making it the ultimate. And we can do this with anything. We can take good relationships, good jobs, get possessions that are gifts from God and we can make them the ultimate thing. Idolatry is subtle, but idolatry surrounds our fears because fear surrounds the loss of our security blankets, the things that we just have to have to make it in life. Sure, I could lose this and lose that, but as long as I don't lose this. And it's different for everybody. Maybe your greatest fear is losing your job. Your greatest fear is losing a family member, whatever it is, have we elevated that above God? And if you want to know, and if I want to know, what our idols are, we follow our fears. We follow our fear. Why would it be so difficult to lose that or to have that happen? And they're different for all of us. Fear at its core is simply a mistrust in God. And the psalmist is reminding us. The psalmist is helping us to think, you see. It's an intellectual song that leads to spiritual blessing. Because fear is a refusal to honor God and see him as he is. To remember who he is. Fear is a form of insanity. What's, by definition, what's insanity? It means you're out of touch with reality. So if you boil it down, you think, boy, when I make something, if I take something that is significant in reality and I make it more important or significant than it needs to be, my, everything gets out of place. If I take this iPad right here, not very big, right? I can hold it with my two hands. But if I go outside and hold this right in front between my face, my eyes, and the sun, I can completely block out the sun, you see. I can take something that in reality is very insignificant to the sun and I can lose my perspective. Remember when Jesus was speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6? And he's saying, why are you scared about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? 
saying, look at the birds of the air. They have everything they need. How much more will my heavenly Father provide for you? Why are you worried about what you're going to wear? Look at the lilies of the field. How much more is my heavenly Father going to clothe you? And basically what Jesus was doing with his disciples, he's saying, think. Think about what's bringing fear to you. Verse 10 simply says, be still and know that I am God. Think about it. And remember that God is near to you. Place the facts to your fears. See, it's not enough here in closing for me to just say to you and leave church today and go, so therefore just don't be afraid. That's like me saying, don't think about the word elephant. Don't think about the word elephant. Don't think about the word elephant. Well, what word are you not supposed to think of? See? We need to ask the questions, why am I scared of this? Why am I fearful? And we need to identify it, and then we put God right in the center and remember verse 10, to be still and say, I know that you are God, and I look to you. We stop, we think, we ask the questions, we remind ourselves, and we remember that he is God. Remember who he is, what he's done, and the fact that he's with us, and that he is everything that we need in Christ. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are everything that we need, even though we may not feel that right now. And even the very consideration and prospect of losing something or something happening what brings fear into our hearts we just pause we say la and we rest in who you are and what you've done and we praise you that you have always been faithful and you always will be faithful and there's nothing that escapes you. And you're a loving, gracious God. And your thoughts towards us are for good and not for evil. And we thank you for Jesus that gave his life for us that we might become children of God and rest in the joy of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.